Uh, hi. Uh, yeah. So, um, this uh, this is an episode that exists. Uh, so this is actually the third episode they made. Um, and it shows. Oh my God! It shows so badly. I. I this is one of those weird circumstances where if someone comes to me and says, you know, how is this a such and such? And my response is, in every way. And people are like, well, that's not an answer. But it's the truth. In every aspect, the visual presentation, the usage of sets, the acting of characters, the presentation of characters, the way the characters actually literally talk to each other. This is actually the final time ever that Deanna refers to Will Riker as Bill, for example, which is something that was endemic of the early three episodes, this, Naked Now, and I think it was an encounter. But anyways, point being, um, the, uh, the nonsensical nature of the plot, which feels like it was ripped straight out of a TOS episode, and I don't mean that in a good way, um, God, just every aspect of this episode makes me stare at it and go, why? This is... Uh. So here we are, Haven. Uh, I have a couple things to talk about here. But I realized, as I was, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through this episode, that I had another, a new reason that this episode pissed me off. <laughs> I always love that when I'm going through an analysis mode and I'm like, oh man, I didn't even realize how much this upsets me. So, some of you have probably seen Voyager. In Voyager, there's a type of episode, there's actually two types of episodes, but the other one isn't relevant for this. There's a type of episode that pisses me off, and always has, and probably always will. And that would be the, will they get home again plot. If you remember, that included the third, or, or was it second? I don't actually remember, but it, among the very first episodes in all of Voyager was a will-they-get-home-again plot, which was just really, really dumb for many reasons that I talked about then and don't really feel the need to go into now. This is the same structure. The whole thrust of the entire episode really revolves around the B-plot, if you will, of Deanna and Wyatt, and the marriage, and will they lose Deanna? Like, that's the main thrust of it. Picard is worried about losing his counselor, and Riker is worried about losing it as Imzadi, which will, of course, never come up again until, of course, we get to Nemesis, or actually, I guess, Insurrection, excuse me. Uh, then, of course, we have... I'm, I'm exaggerating. It'll come up several times, but, I mean, seriously. Then, in, in addition to that... We have Deanna's own worry about the fact that she's about to lose her career and her life. Uh, and it, that that's, that's just the focus of everything, right? But the thing is, this is the third episode of the series, or the 11th, or the 10th, depending on how you're counting. One way or another, this is early on. Now, yes, I know the Tashiar thing is kind of an exception, and we'll talk about that when we get there, but in general, there is no tension in this. Will Deanna, like, the whole time, even as a kid, I'm watching this episode and thinking, so what's going to get in the way of the marriage? Because something's going to, because I knew that, because they're not just going to kick one of the main cast members off the crew this early into a show that's just starting. Again, I know. 
the Denise Crosby thing really is an exception. Let, let's be honest about that. That is the kind of thing that usually doesn't happen, even nowadays, when it's kind of normal to kill off regulars in television. That's still kind of unusual to pull that kind of a trick, especially so early on. So, whatever. This this episode, oh god, it literally hurts. There's, there's, oh. There's a scene where they go to Planet Soundstage on the holodeck. And I'm just staring at it like, wow, that's just amazing. You can recreate a soundstage on a holodeck. <laughs> I mean, God's sakes, we've seen more impressive stuff on the holodeck already before this in Encounter at Farpoint. By the way, the next episode, The Big Goodbye, is the first real holodeck episode. Now, again, this is kind of endemic of the whole, this was an early episode problem because they didn't have all the sets built back then. In fact, there's a scene which really showcases this for me. After the teaser, it cuts to a scene where Deanna, Picard, and Riker discuss the realities of what this means for, for Troy, okay? And then Data comes in to inform them that, you know, more stuff's happening, okay? All of this makes sense. But it all happens... Uh, it all happens in the captain's ready room. So, why does it happen there again? Well, I know the answer to that question. It's because it was a set they had built. There's no other real strong reason for it to be there. Not really. In fact, there's stronger reasons for it to be in other places that they will eventually have sets for. But again, this was the third episode produced. So, eh, you know, even the corridors don't look right in this episode. I'm getting off topic. So, another thing that I can't stand about this episode is the construction of the plot. Um... Basically, it's badly written, if I was to just summarize it. And I, I hate to actually say that so definitively, because I'm the kind of person who usually argues for different types of writing, or different mentalities, or thought processes in writing, and will defend you know, some kind of writing that some people disagree with, and even kind of writings I disagree with. But in this case, this is just clearly, definitively, objectively bad writing. Let me give you an example. Just one example. There's so many in this episode. So... Think about this constructively. Like, pull yourself out of the episode for a moment. The Enterprise happens to be in orbit of Haven, basically just for some R&R. They're not called there. They're not on any mission. They just happen to be there. And then they get a signal that something is beaming up. They don't know what. They don't know why. Something is just being beamed up. Now, Riker, first officer, is called in on this. Not security or anything else that might make sense. <laughs> Actually, I guess that's a lie. Tasha was there, wasn't she? So never mind, never mind. I'll take that back. I'll take that back. Um, God, I actually forgot Tasha was in that scene. She's she's basically a non-entity in this episode. So we've got security there. That's the first thing that makes sense about all this. Riker's there, and this Betazoid gift box beams up and is absolutely nightmarishly horrifying. Uh, no offense to Armin Shimmerman, who played the box. This is actually his first role in Star Trek, was this frickin' box. But anyways... So it beams up this box, and by what happened, what, what, literally, Deanna Troy, who is the recipient of this box, it's worth noting, just happens to be walking by, and just happens to walk in and be like, hey, what's going on? Can you see how this is an example of bad narrative construction? Even objectively. Later on, there's an episode that actually, er, there's an episode, excuse me, there's, there's a tidbit that actually irks me more personally. And that's the fact that we've got the Torellian ship, who's oncoming, and they're here for Wyatt, 
you know, by their own admission, or assuming it was all a lie, they're here to go to the planet and die. Those are their objectives, okay? Makes sense. They're stuck at non-warp speed, which means just moving through the system is going to take an absolutely ridiculous amount of time. And they've probably been traveling for literally years at this point. Now, credit where it's due, they actually mention that they've been traveling that long. Okay, so fair enough. But next thing is they, they come in and they don't immediately communicate upon seeing another ship there. Remember, they're here for Wyatt. Or, failing that, to get to the planet. So naturally, the most logical thing to do when being in a ship that is known for being the type of ship that other aliens will destroy on sight, the best possible thing to do is to just wander in and not communicate at all, right? What's the motive behind not communicating? I dare you to come up with one, because there isn't any. It's there to add tension, to make it seem like they either they're all dead, as Data already postulates, or that they are, have some kind of villainous intent, like they're the bad guys of the episode. And, of course, then to add to the twist of, oh my god, Ariana happens to be on the ship. Who could have seen that coming? They only spent like five frickin' solid minutes, which may not sound like a long time, but they really spend a long time focusing on him and his visions and his art and his visions and his art and his dreams. <laughs> so, towards the beginning of the episode, uh, Riker is sitting down, relaxing, enjoying some R&R. Now, obviously, we don't have Riker as a character yet third episode produced, but you'd think that he would have the capability to do something more relaxing than sitting and watching a holographic presentation of two weirdly dressed girls playing a harp. Excuse me, playing harps. Let's, let's be accurate about this. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, Lord knows that I'm not a good person to judge other people's entertainment. I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to relax. I'm the kind of person who, if I relax, it stresses me out. But, God's sakes, you literally have a holodeck. In fact, you go on that holodeck in this episode. But no, he's just kind of sitting in his room, kind of leaning back in his chair, looking really, really uncomfortable on those badly made chairs they had in early season one. And the best part, is the, it, 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 he's just looking into the camera and giving the biggest, stupidest grin possible. So, also, what the hell's up with the music on this episode? I, I mean, I know it was done by, uh, Dennis McCarthy, I want to say. It's the other, it's pretty much the other main TNG composer alongside Ron Jones. And, uh, and I hope I'm not mixing up my names. I'm sorry if I, if I am. But this music actively makes me go, huh? What? Like, it doesn't sound thematic. It doesn't sound like it's trying to add emotion to a scene or complement a scene. It sounds like someone decided to write music and then affix that to the episode. Like, I can't picture any specific part where the music actually complemented a scene. And you know it's a weird-slash-bad episode when I'm commenting on the music in such a manner. In fact, I'm pretty sure the last time I really brought this up in, and really discussed this was in the episode Basics over on Voyager, where I spent like five minutes just discussing the music situation. So then Troy, so then, you know, Troy 
happens to walk into the transporter room. And Troy has to abandon a promising career. Why? <laughs> I'm sorry. Why? We do know that parents are can both be in Starfleet. That is a thing. And that has been a thing before now, but that is a thing in TNG as well. In fact, we have a prime example of this right now, because Dr. Crusher and Jack Crusher were both in Starfleet, both married, and even had time for a freaking kid. I mention this because several times in Star Trek, it's just sort of automatically assumed that someone will be resigning or hanging up their post because they happen to be getting married, and it's usually the female. Uh, Balance of Terror. Sorry, I had to think about that for a moment. Balance of Terror is an excellent example of this, where it's not even, it's not a lot, not a lot of attention is paid to it. It's it's kind of a very minor sub part of the episode, but it's mentioned how, uh, I forget her name, forgive me, is going to resign her commission once this is all settled and once it's all done. Why? <laughs> Troy, I don't want to stress this because I actually talked about this last episode too. This is the flagship of the Federation. And, again, most people listening to this probably understand what I mean when I say getting into Starfleet at all is probably considered a pretty positive thing by most people. And, or most people who would, would be involved in it, you know, like, or, uh, most people in the Federation, there we go, let's put it that way. So most people in the Federation probably aspire to join Starfleet, aspire to get out on a ship, and aspire to be on a flagship, the flagship, the Enterprise. A lot of history in that name, never mind the fact that this ship is being captained by the already legendary Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> so, Troy has to give up her extremely promising career. Why, exactly? I'm, I'm just curious. I'm sure there's some reason there buried deep, deep in the writer's subconscious. But I'm going to move on from this point. So, uh... What? I I can't read my own notes. Oh my gosh. Hang on. I don't know what this means. I I I literally just watched this episode like just before I started recording and I can't tell what my own notes mean. It says Rome's still alive somewhere. What? Oh. Romance. I understand now. I understand. Oh my god. Okay, so... <sighs> you know how sometimes you can kind of tell how an episode is intended to be structured, and then how it's actually structured doesn't line up with that? So throughout most of the episode, effort is put into trying to make it seem like Loxana and the Miller family are both unreasonable, terrible people who are clinging to their traditions, and they're both equally bad, right? Now, the actual episode doesn't pan out that way, but one of the attempts they make to do that is the woman says, oh, I knew romance was alive somewhere in the galaxy, and it's like, what kind of line is that? What are you trying to imply exactly with that line? I, I want to stress, by the way, that the reason this so-called romance exists, as previously defined, was because when these two people were kids, they were uh, betrothed to each other. It took me a moment to think of the word. They were betrothed to each other. They haven't known or met each other since. They have since grown up. 
She has a promising career. He has a promising career. He's a frickin' medical doctor who studies viral agents, indeed. And she's, well, hypothetically at least, a trained and skilled psychologist and psychiatrist and possibly psychotherapist on the flagship of the Federation. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to get into opinions here, but... I'm just going to say that two people who are effectively meeting each other for the first time and deciding, let's get married, does not strike me as romantic. And and to use that as the basis to say that romance is still alive just makes me roll my eyes. But then, then, then Loxana comes on board. Now, I've actually mentioned this before. I want to really make this clear. Major Barrett was, by all accounts, a pretty awesome person. I never got to meet her myself, unfortunately. And I do say unfortunately. I do consider that one of the thing, one of the actors, uh, and one of the people involved in Star Trek that I would have liked to be able to meet and discuss things with in real, in real life, uh, like I have done with Leonard Nimoy and Brent Spiner, for example. But, I hate Loxana Troy. I absolutely despise her as a character. I, and it's so obvious why that I don't even know where to begin with this. I, I feel weird for having to even defend this point. And again, I want to make it clear that I do like Majel Barrett, but that does not mean I like her character. So, she shows up. First thing she does is she starts talking tele telepathically with Deanna, okay? Uh, that's already rude just in the base of it, that's pretty much the equivalent of walking up to someone, recognizing that one of the people present speaks, let's say, Korean. And you also speak Korean, and you know for a fact that no one else present speaks Korean. And you just start talking in Korean to them, completely ignoring the other people there. Now, I'm not saying we all need to speak American or whatever stupid argument could be leveled at that. But what I am saying is that if you deliberately start snubbing people in a social situation like that, especially this kind of situation where you are reaching out to someone and other people have invited you on board, then you are being rude. I'm sorry. Except I'm not sorry. I shouldn't even say that. I am not sorry about that fact. You are being rude. Then... She says, oh, of course, who else but the captain would come down to meet me? I mean, it's, it's obvious I am so important of an individual that no one less than the captain could ever come and meet me, right? I mean, that's just logical. And then she deigns to give him the ability to say, you may carry my luggage. What? Then, of course, she berates Picard for barely being able to carry this giant luggage of doom, which exists for a reason I'll get into in just a second. And then, when Picard is desperately trying to get the hell out of here, and, and, and I gotta give credit, because even for early Picard, like, like late Picard would have handed, handled this with panache and smoothness and subtlety, but I gotta give credit, even for early Picard, remember, third episode, uh, Patrick Stewart manages to be surprisingly diplomatic, given the fact that this woman is being incredibly overbearing. And then, so she's, so he, she, I give you permission to leave. You are dismissed. I'm sorry, what? <sighs> then I stopped. I actually have notes here where I was just taking down notes 
every specific instance in which she was being rude or overbearing or unpleasant. And I stopped because it's every scene she's in. Literally all of them. There's one scene where she... Actually, there's two scenes where she's trying to come across... It's clear that the intent is to make her a more pleasant person. And even in those scenes, she just can't help but slip a razor blade in, to, to, to borrow a quote, or to borrow a phrase. In other words, here's a compliment that has a razor blade in it. You know what I'm talking about with that kind of concept. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you've encountered that in real life. You know, wow, you're doing really good for a guy. Wow, I didn't think someone of, uh, at your level, we'll use a video game example, I didn't think someone at your level could pull off that kind of a feat, you know. The kind of backhanded compliment that is actually intended to be an insult. She does this. <sighs> I'll talk about that specific scene later, by the way. Because I got even more to rant about that. So, I stopped. I couldn't keep up with how much of an aggravating aggravation she was. But I do want to talk about, and I really hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Karel Stroiken. Uh, Karel Stroiken. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's the gentleman who plays Holmes, and of course, uh, you know, is over on probably more known for his role over in Adam's family. But I want to give credit to him because he's actually a gem. Every time he's on screen, it made me grin, and I mean that with total sincerity. First of all, he does something I actually used to like to do a lot back in theater. Some of my directors uh, used to tell me, "Stop doing that." lore because uh you're you're drawing attention over to you he does background acting what i mean by that is the focus is over here on character a and character b they're talking they're discussing but there's stuff going on in the background now i actually disagreed with those directors and had some discussions with them about it and we came to a consensus on it blah 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 but the point is i really like the idea of background acting Something going on in the background that's not really supposed to be the focus that adds to your enjoyment of the scene. And that is home in a nutshell in about half the scenes he's in. Because about half the scenes are focused on Loxana or Picard or Troy or uh, Data. But he's just there in the background. And he's, and he's got this great visual acting thing going on. He only says the one line. Famously, this is his only line as Holmes in the entire series. Uh, but he... He's got this great visual acting thing where he doesn't have to say dialogue. He just gives a performance and great facial expressions, great body language. It's, some of it's really overt, some of it's nice and subtle. It's, it's good stuff all around. I urge you, if you're rewatching these episodes with me, which as ever I urge people to do, I urge you to watch him as, as you're going through the episode. So, big props to him. Uh, weird thing though, Loxana brings up Zelos. Now, this is aggravating for two reasons. First of all, it is effectively a continuity error. Uh, because, as is established in future episodes, obviously they didn't plan this out, and Lord knows Star Trek is loose with its continuity anyways, but as is pointed out later on, Holm apparently, by all accounts, has been with the Troy family since Deanna was a child. And yet, by all accounts, Holm is a new addition to the Troy family. Because... Not only does Deanna not actually recognize him in this episode, but it's flat out stated that he is a replacement for Zelos, who had to be gotten rid of because of made-up reason about lustful thoughts about Loxana. Now, 
like I said, that irritates me because of the continuity reason, but it also irritates me for another reason. And I'm just going to talk about this now because I just brought it up. At the very end of the episode, she's getting on the porta pad and she says, Oh, Picard, such lustful thoughts. Even Zelos wasn't that imaginative. In other words, the only reason they introduced something which is just kind of an unnecessarily unnecessary plot point that is actually contradicted by later lore was to do a stupid joke. As ever, if you're going to break continuity, do it for some frickin' reason. Do something with it. Don't just make a lame joke, which will eventually become a running gag as she constantly makes fun of the fact that Picard is constantly lusting after her, even though it's very clear, even in this episode, and always will be, that Picard can't stand her frickin' guts. <sighs> so... Uh, here's where I actually stopped writing down examples of her being, and I quote myself here, rude, irritating, and unpleasant. But then we talk about the planet Haven, which is supposed to be one of the most beautiful, amazing, wonderful worlds ever. We're not showing you it, but trust us, we've got these great jugglers just off screen. And um, they talk about, oh my god, this ship, this is when the plague plot kind of shows up, this, this ship has, has violated us, they, they've, they've gotten past our Stargate. You know, I actually sat for a moment trying to think, okay, how can the word Stargate apply in this situation? Uh, nope, I got nothing. Like, the best I could come up with was the really vague idea that the outer periphery of a star system being defined, the whole shell, the bubble of it, being defined as a Stargate. Because you can't tell me they literally have a Stargate out there. <laughs> or maybe she meant Starbase? Except these people have no defenses. That's actually a plot point. That's another point, by the way. Why do these people have no defenses? Oh, well, I mean, I know the answer to that. It's because this is still in the era where most of the writers involved are uh, dealing with the fallout of the Vietnam situation. And as such, think military, as in all military, is bad. And uh, so obviously, they're a peaceful, wonderful world. Why would they have a military? They don't need to defend that incredible paradise. That's ridiculous. After all, that's what they've got the Federation for, right? I'm not, I'm not going to keep going. Moving on, moving on. So, they, so we bypass the Stargate. We have no defenses. Then we see a really really bland scene between Wyatt and Deanna. Now, I really wish that I could say anything positive about basically any of the acting in this episode that doesn't involve Mr. Stroykin, which I, again, really hope I'm saying his name correctly. He was a gem. He really was. But everyone else just comes across as a little pat or a little bleh or just kind of like they're just reading their lines. Wyatt's performance in particular... Make reminds me of someone. <sighs> okay, this is gonna. I'm gonna segue for just a second here. Please forgive me. I want you to picture that you are a decent actor or actress. Okay, just picture that in your mind. Now you are being forced to do a a. Uh, oh, I forget what it's called. But you're acting against another person. You have a duet scene. Okay, so you two have to act uh, against each other. Now that other actor is not a good actor. They, they've flubbed their lines. They have no idea what they're doing. 
this is when being a good improvisational actor, knowing how to flow through with the lines and try to roll with the punches, comes into things. Uh, the reason I wanted to segue with this, we actually had a lesson entirely about this uh, all the way back when I was actually doing acting classes and uh, back when I was still involved in theater. And I failed it miserably. I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this because in hindsight it was so obvious what I was supposed to do. But I, I, fl I completely failed this assignment. What it was was I had to act a scene against someone else. The other person didn't memorize their lines at all. This was deliberate. This was part of the lesson. But the other person didn't memorize their lines at all and didn't act at all. So I was basically performing a one act against them, and I had to actually lean in a few times. I shouldn't say had to. I leaned in a few times to correct them, tell them what their next lines were, and they were would just give them in the most terrible pronunciation tone ever. The whole point of the lesson was that, that as an actor, sometimes you have to act against other people who are not acting well. And learning how to deal with that is the whole thing. Now, I have credits. Uh, for Marina Sirtis and her acting credentials. And Lord knows she will do some pretty decent acting in the future in this show uh, and in the movies. But this shows that, at least at this point in time, she had no idea how to act against someone who was not a good actor. Because Wyatt is not a good actor. Uh, in fact, I would, I would pretty much define him as the same kind of actor that I am. Because I'm not a good actor. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to admit this now. You know, it's a few years since I did my whole theatrical tour and, and, and tried to desperately to actually be good at acting. Uh, he's the kind of person who works best doing monologues or soliloquies or, or s segments where he is acting in a vacuum. Because every time he's on his own, he's okay. And then it, you could tell later on, I feel like the director shifted tone. Because the first scene between him and Deanna is just tepid. It's like lukewarm water sitting out in a bowl, right? And then the second scene that they have together, which is on the holodeck, is better because he's not acting against her anymore. In fact, if you pay attention to his performance, he's basically acting as if he's alone in the room. And that makes it a little bit better. But, of course, she is still having issues acting against someone who is not acting back, and so the whole thing just kind of comes across as, eh, okay, whatever. <sighs> then, I mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to bring up more issues of bad writing, but they're on a starship, a starship that has things called sensors. Uh, they literally have to have sensors. If they don't have sensors, and this is important, if they don't sensor, have sensors that work at faster than light speeds, then they are literally suicidal. Because at any time they're warping or going wherever, they, their sensors will not function since they are now moving faster than light, right? All of this makes sense? So with these incredible sensors that the Enterprise-D has, they see a ship coming. They notice they don't notice it until it's hours from the planet, Okay. That's closer than the moon is to us now, okay? <laughs> now, if, if we're to really stretch it, if we're to really stretch the speeds that this dilapidated 20th century equivalent ship can go, maybe it's a little further out than the moon. But that's, a, that's an absolute most bendability of, of suspension of disbelief here. So, in other words, it's in spitting distance from, from a space perspective of the planet. That's the first time they actually notice the ship and start looking into it. And they can't and haven't identified it before now. Keeping in mind, the planet noticed that 
a ship past their stargate, whatever the hell that means, earlier. Like, significantly earlier. <laughs> so then they go out, and Picard says, Magnify! He doesn't actually say that, but I, I, I found myself grinning. Anybody who's watched Voyager knows why that made me grin. So, Magnify! And then he and Data identify it visually, because they can apparently know their history well enough to know the style of the ship to instantly recognize the thing. Why is this the moment at which you identified this thing? <laughs> and then, of course, they're like, oh my god, this is a threat. And then, Dr. Crusher to the bridge. We must stop them before they do us and destroy the planet down below. Da -da -da -da! Cut to commercial. I'll give them this. The fact that he mentions Dr. Crusher was a nice touch. It's the first and only hint in, in this particular sequence that makes this, uh, uh, at, at this point, unknown threat of the week seem like something that's actually, you know, other than just we're a big ship with big guns. So, credits there. But, uh, this brings me to the Torellians. <sighs> this brings me to the Torellians. So... 20th century-ish technology capable. As you can tell right now, we have more than the capacity to have ships that can go between systems right now. That's a thing we have. <laughs> With artificial gravity and, and, and internal atmospheres and all sorts of fun stuff, because we just apparently have that. And moving on, moving on. I'm trying really hard not to be a continuity hound and nitpick, but God, it's hard with some of these early episodes. Anyways, so... We've got, we've got this really unadvanced ship. Now, apparently they came up with this super plague that was super infectious, cross-species infectious, which is more of a big deal than it sounds like if you really think about it. In fact, forgive me for mentioning it, but Babylon 5 actually made a plot point of a specific plague that was actually cross-species, or rather, the fear that it might become cross-species, because... That was a big deal, as it should be. Mass Effect 2 even mentioned how big of a deal a cross-species plague was. So, most science fiction understands the significance of that. But it's just mentioned in brief here. You know, as an aside, as, as like an hors d'oeuvre to the problem. So we've got this cross-species doom plague that they came up with, which they carry, which apparently lets them live for literally years just fine. Remember, these people do not have warp and have been traveling to this system... At least they acknowledge that they've been traveling for years on that one, so some credit to the writer on that point. But, so we've got this Doom Plague, we've got this ship, and apparently these people went out and went out to the stars in other non-warp-capable ships and landed on other planets and wiped out those planets, apparently, because, you know, Doom Plague. Uh, first of all, that's a little ridiculous on several levels. But then, but I don't even want to dissect that, because that gets into the realm of almost total speculation, because we have so little facts involved. But we do know, what we do know is that other races basically banded together and started genociding the Torellians, because that's the way to deal with this. <laughs> and the Federation apparently was just totally okay with this. Oh, I mean, of course they were Prime Directive. I should have known. But with all, all all joking aside, what the hell? Was everyone just okay with wiping out these people? Killing all their ships and destroying them to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Now, I know it sounds really callous to ignore the death of a planet, but based on the way it's presented, I don't think there was any malice involved in that action. Gr flagrant stupidity, but not malice. 
If we were to start wiping out every race that had flagrant stupidity, we would have a very empty galaxy very soon. Why didn't anybody with the... Me and a, a viewer uh, somewhat recently, months ago actually, uh, had, a, had a discussion about who had better uh, medical technology, the Romulans or the Federation. Now, we discussed this back and forth, but the thing to take away from this is that both the Romulans and the Federation, bar none, have really advanced medical technology, probably enough to solve this frickin' plague. Certainly Wyatt seems to think so, and he's not even part of the frickin' Federation. So, why exactly is it that no one bothered to reach out to these people, these refugees at this point, and say, ah, oh, we'll help you out, we'll try and solve this sucker, we'll get this plague fixed. No, they didn't reach out to them with cures or doctors or medicine or research or help or aid or anything, like a quarantine zone maybe, like a moon that, that, that nobody else is living on that you could just set some... No, no, we don't do any of that. We just show up with frickin' guns. Really? Keeping in mind that wherever these Torellians are, from a galactic perspective, had to be next door to Haven. Because they don't have warp drive. And they have a terminal deadly disease on board. Although apparently even that is stretched beyond the levels of believability, because remember, she's been having these visions with him since she was a kid. Oh, that reminds me. So in addition to how incredibly stupid the Torellians thing is, there's two other things that piss me off about them. Number one is the not communicate thing. I just want to re rehash that point because it's really stupid. The second point is that she's been having visions, and not just visions, but literally the ability to communicate in her dreams with Wyatt. I remind you, Wyatt is a human. Humans don't have that ability in this setting. This is not StarCraft, where some humans have psionic potential, okay? This is Star Trek. I know it's hard, easy to get them confused, whoever is writing this story, because they both start with Star, and StarCraft wasn't made yet. <sighs> sorry, sorry. How exactly is it that these two reach out to each other across ridiculous distances, it's worth noting? Again, a light year. One light year is an insane, insane distance. Think about how far it was from... So let's assume for a moment that they are within, let's say, about 20 light years of Haven, okay? Let's just ballpark that. Because let's assume that they have the ability to travel at near light speed, you know, basically full impulse. Um, although some works disagree. But you get my point. You know, near light speed, but can't actually break it. And they happen to... And, and they have been traveling from Torelia ever since this happened. And she's been having these dreams of Wyatt ever since they left, and she was a kid when they left. So we could say it's been roughly 20 years, maybe less, maybe like 15 years. But let's, let's ballpark and say 20 years. So about 20 light years around Haven, right? Again, that's not particularly that far. Now, we have unfortunately no information on how far Haven is away from Earth, but I guarantee you it's longer than 20 light years. Now, I want you to picture having real-time mental telepathy and communication with someone across more than 20 light years as a child. I know I'm really hammering this point in, but this is, of, of all the things in this episode that piss me off, Loxana Troy, the bad writing, the bad acting, this one point pisses me off more than anything else. And, and there's a second reason why, and I'm about to talk about that. 
Because in addition to this already ludicrous capability, in addition to this insane feat of miraculous communication, which is so high tier that I don't actually think anything else sort of the Q has ever replicated it across Star Trek. I could be wrong, there's probably other examples, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. In addition to this fact, it's the explanation for why it's happened is just hand-waved away. There's a scene where Loxana, I told you I'd talk about this scene, Loxana and Wyatt sit down, and Wyatt's basically wondering, how is this possible? And Loxana says, oh, well, you're an idiot, because of course she has to insult him. Humans are so, it's so simple that humans can't understand it. <sighs> I've already ranted about that, and I'm going to go into it again. And then she says, what, something so vacuous that I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around it. But the basic idea is that all life is connected. All the universe is connected. We're all together in one big happy family. Because after all, thought is reality. You remember that? Where no one has gone before? Yeah, I railed there too because it was still stupid and it's still stupid now. Basically, there's only two ways to look at this from a broad sense. Either... This is the where no one has gone before. All of us are all connected. Or, this is a fluke of flukes with no explanation. And I'm not particularly satisfied with either of those explanations. Now, I ask you guys questions a lot when I'm doing these, re these recordings. And I do so with the hope that you will actually sit down there in the comments and respond to my questions. Because uh, I do love reading everyone's comments on these videos. I read every single one of them. I obviously don't respond to all of them. But I do read everyone's, 100% of the comments that come in through my show. So I ask you this question. Does this bother you as much as it does me? <laughs> really? Honestly? Legit? Is this just me? <laughs> uh, so, then... I shouldn't say then. I, unfortunately, that's the wealth of, of the episode to me. I, and I'm going to say something else about that, but I found the whole Torellian thing more interesting from a, from a storytelling perspective, more engaging than the marriage plot. Which is funny, because if you actually look at the percentage of it, the plague plot is like maybe 15% of the episode. And the overwhelming majority of the rest of it is devoted to the marriage plot. But anyways, anyways. So... The Millers and Loxana start disagreeing, and Picard says, In accordance with Starfleet tradition, I hereby declare all disagreements resolved. You know what, that's so stupid, I don't even know how to, how to, adjust, how to, how to react to that. <laughs> it really is. I, I know that a military's job is sometimes to stand in between two opposing diplomats and say, Hang on, hang on. <laughs> but that's not what Picard does, he just says... Argument over. Except the argument isn't over. Nothing's been resolved. Nothing's been decided. And in fact, the next scene at the dinner shows that because they're still arguing and, and, and about this unresolved conflict. You didn't resolve Jack, Picard. You just said, stop arguing. Tired of listening to you. And you know what? I would have actually had more respect for that scene if he literally just said, stop arguing. I'm tired of listening to it. Lord knows Picard has the cojones to do something like that. Although that is, of course, future Picard, not current Picard, but whatever. So then, here's where I make my other note about how it probably sp was designed so both sides 
come across as unreasonable. But Luxana, and I'm going to use this word very particularly here, because she comes across as rude and irritating and deliberately provokes people and extremely smug and self-superior. Now, I know there are good Luxana episodes in Star Trek. I've seen them. There's one I can think of in TNG and a couple in DS9 where she's okay. But for the most part, Luxana is is con- con- continuously portrayed in this particular manner. Now, that's relevant because I would argue that Luxana Troy is a bully. Now, some of you might be like, why is he saying that like that's significant? I don't use that word very lightly. That's why. I only apply that word to very specific case-by-case situations. And in fact, it irritates me when people misapply that word to someone for being aggressive or defending themselves or whatever. But I think Loxana Troy legitimately bullies those around her, at least in this episode, and probably one other I could come up with off the top of my head in Season 2. And it's hard for me to think, oh man, the Millers are so unreasonable, even though they do attempt that, when all I see is Loxana basically going, is this bothering you? Is this bothering you? Is this bothering you? And god damn, I actually have a note here in my notes that just says, clang! I bet if you've seen this episode, you know what I'm talking about. Clang! Do we have to keep doing that? It's giving thanks for the food. And yet what's weird, and I paid attention, there's no measure or rhyme to it. He just hits the bell whenever. Like, at first I was thinking, okay, he hits the bell every, like, say, X period of time. That would make a degree of sense. But he does that irregularly. So I'm like, okay, that doesn't work. Uh, Maybe he's doing it every time someone takes a bite of food. Nope. That doesn't work that way either. Okay, what exactly determines the rhythm of him hitting it? Is it just whenever he remembers? Like, I get traditions and customs, and I get that not everyone's going to get along with those, but A, this is deliberately irritating, at least on the part of the out-of-character perspective, and from an in-character perspective, is frankly rude. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say Bob has a tradition of... You know what, I can't come up with something. A tradition of something that irritates you, okay? This is not hard to understand, because I imagine most of you out there have either had family members or loved ones or roommates or friends who stayed the night where they've had little habits that have irritated you. Might not be anything too severe, but still irritating, right? So Bob there does something that irritates you. Now, you bring up, this is kind of irritating, could you stop please? Or... Does he have to keep doing that? And if Bob just says, sorry, this is just how I am, or this is just my tradition, or whatever, that's just being rude at that point. It's not us being rude. I want to really make this point, because as I mentioned before, this was back in Code of Honor, I believe, I pulled this up, early TNG has this weird perspective that we're just supposed to bow and scrape for every tiny little whim that pops into the heads of whatever aliens we happen to be interacting with. Not diplomatizing, I know that's not a word, not coordinating or cooperating with them, not being respectful and saying, I'm sorry, that is a problem for us, can we please work this another way, or try this another way? No, 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 we're just supposed to bow and scrape for whatever freaking dickish thing pops into your mind, because it's your tradition. 
it is possible to respect someone else and their traditions and their beliefs and their mentalities and their preferences without suddenly becoming the overwhelming I will embrace everything about it to the ex exemption of myself. And by the way, this is going to come up later again in the episode Angel 1. I know it is. It's, it's an argument I've been kind of building up to as we've been going through Season 1. Because in my opinion, Angel 1 is the, is the climax, the, the worst aspect of this non-diplomatic approach. Because this isn't diplomacy at this point. If someone walks up to you and says, give me your backpack, and you just give them your backpack, that's not diplomacy. If someone walks up to you and says, stand on one leg and hop, and you just do it without question or hesitation because it's, it's, it's respectful, that's not respectful. I am yelling a lot lately on season one. I apologize, guys. So at the dinner scene, uh, I do have to admit, Data made me smile. Uh, he really did. Please continue the petty bickering. It's very fascinating to observe. I actually admit that's pretty cool. Uh, and and fairly in character, although he was grinning way too much. It was kind of creepy seeing that. But as, you know, very early... Uh, in fact, again, third episode, so in Encounter at Farpoint, he grins. In Naked Now, he grins. And in here, he grins. So it's kind of consistent with the early stuff. But anyways, so as he's there grinning, uh, him finding this kind of social interaction fascinating, it totally makes sense to me. It is the thing I could totally buy Data being into. Um, so then... So then uh, Wyatt and Crusher start talking about the plague plot. Now, I know this wasn't done on purpose, but this is actually brilliant unintentionally. The whole episode's been focused on this stupid marriage plot, which, I'm just going to be blunt, is not that interesting or engaging. There's not any, any even any conflict or real issues or dilemmas or characterization or fleshing out of anything. No, it's just Luxana's a bully. If you disagree with that, then Luxana's irritating. The Millers are obstinate. And these two people who have no chemistry together are being forced together and trying to make the most of it. That's it. That's the story. There's, it's not trying to say anything. It's not trying to tell anything. It's like saying, hey, look at that guy's weird hair. And then that's it. That's all you have to say. You know, you have to go a few more steps than that episode. So the marriage plot is not interesting, okay? In my opinion, I, I have to add that. I just hear the voice in the back of my head. In my opinion, I'm sure there's someone out there who likes the marriage plot. <laughs> In the midst of this, in the midst of this dinner scene, Wyatt and Crusher start talking about the plague and how they're going to deal with it and his interest in viral biology and possibilities of what they could do about it and how they're going to have to get supplies over there and maybe they should interact with this. And from an out-of-character perspective, it felt like two of the characters in a play just leaned forward towards the audience and start talking to each other about something far more interesting than what's actually going on in the play. Because they basically just drag the attention of the viewer away from the marriage plot towards the plague plot while they're talking. Unfortunately, then the marriage plot comes right back in. Riker says, I'm out. By the way, Riker look, acts like he's on Vicodin this whole episode. Or not Vicodin, wrong word. Ritalin. This whole episode. I don't know what the hell they were telling Jonathan Frakes, but he was just... Uh, mm. Alright, act angry. <sighs> You know, it's just, I know Frakes can do better than this. What the hell? So, you know, uh, Frakes, excuse me, Riker storms off, and then Deanna storms off after him, literally yells at the top of her lungs, actually. 
And I get that she's upset. I'm upset too. But it really feels out of place. Like, I hate to keep going back to this theatrical tint, but I mean, this whole episode feels like a cheap play to me, uh, or an amateur play. It feels like you have two different qualities of actors, and one of them has been given one direction, and the other's been given a separate direction. Like, by separate directors, even. So, we've got this overall performance, and then Deanna is giving a separate performance, like she's literally in a different play. And it, it continues into the scene of the holodeck, which I've actually already really talked about, so I don't have anything else to add to that. But then, then, oh my god, then... Okay, so... I'm... The Trellian ship is heading towards Haven. Okay. And the Enterprise is just kind of watching. For hours, I want to stress. Yep, yep, just watching. And meanwhile, the people in Haven are like, Oh God, we're going to die! We're going to die! Legitimately freaking out over this. Now, whether they have a legitimate reason to or not is more debatable. And in fact, is one of the kind of things that would make a very interesting discussion about one of the subpoints that's never actually brought up by the episode. That fear that drove people to start genociding the Torellians. That concept that so many races were so afraid of them and what might happen to them as a consequence that, that they were willing to lash out with violence. That's an interesting concept. Never really analyzed or discussed, but it's something that's kind of cool. So these people are terrified. They literally flat out say, you must destroy them. Like, I was waiting to hear if they said it directly, and they do. The, the, the head triacorn or whatever says, please, you must destroy them. And Picard says no. Now that makes sense. What does not make sense is the fact that Picard sits on his ass and does nothing until they're already in threat range. Now presume for a moment that the Torellians were actually here to beam down to the planet. He waits until after they're in beaming range, then slowly takes action and drags them back out of beaming range. How long does it take to beam? How hard would it be, if that was their actual intent, for them to just start beaming people down as soon as they were in transporter range to the planet? Now, thankfully that is not what they were after, but that's thanks to luck. Not anything on Picard's part. Keeping in mind, he had access to things like, oh, I don't know, tractor beams from the beginning. So the idea of just grabbing the ship before it enters transporter range would be very simple and easy. And then, this is great. Tasha says, I'm confident I could shoot, you know, I could shoot phasers just to disable, not to destroy. And I'm thinking, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we're trying to disable this ship so it does not prevent a threat without destroying it because we're not monsters. I'm with it. And then Picard turns to and in a fairly smug tone says, and then what, Lieutenant? Uh, gee, I don't know, Picard, maybe you could do your goddamn job. Then what? I know that's a badly constructed sentence, but just bear with me. I mean, really? That's your argument, Picard? And then what? Well, maybe you could do something about it. And then, of course, and I already ranted about this, then, then, after they do the tractor beam, that's when the Torellians are like, okay, go ahead and hail them, I guess. God, fine. We'll talk to you. God damn, they should be grateful it was the frickin' Enterprise and Picard, who was apparently just having a lazy day that day, and not, I don't know, anybody else in orbit of that planet. Because, 
I mean, ignoring the politics of this, one of your allies or member states, they never make it clearly, has flat out given you a request for military aid against a potential invader. Now, most Starfleet would probably not go and immediately destroy that ship, but I guarantee they'd go fire on it and, oh, I don't know, disable its engines, like Tasha was saying to do. And it is possible that those shots wouldn't have actually gone all that well, and that ship would be a lot more screwed than just some engine problem. Like, what if they hit the ship and it was so damaged or so old or so unstable that just the act of the attack itself causes some destabilization in whatever engines or core or power source they have, right? So now the ship's going to self-destruct. Well, now what do you do? Because, guess what? They have an airborne deadly cross-species virus on board. Can't beam them out. Don't know where to beam them out to. If we were really smart, we might be quick enough in the seconds we have before they destroy are, are destroyed to get a shuttle out there and beam them on the shuttle, or shuttles as the case may be. But you see how this is a problem here. Those guys were damned lucky in this case. Why the hell weren't they communicating? Why didn't the moment they see Enterprise be like, hey, here's our intentions. And they come across the whole time as, we are peaceful. Like, they actually do this whole passive-aggressive thing. If we're to die in your tractor beam, so be it. What the crap, guys? You... <laughs> then, of course, Wyatt, who has sensed her through the interdimensional groove network, has decided to say, okay, okay, I figured it out. This is my destiny. I shall beam aboard the deadly virus place and go and interact with these people and cure them, all eight of them that's left of their entire species. To be with the woman of his dreams, uh, literally. And that's a good ending, I guess? I mean, he's out of our hair and Deanna gets to... Oh, oh, sorry guys, I know a lot of people get really upset because they watch a video called Rumination Analysis and think there shouldn't be spoilers in it, and those people are idiots, but... Spoiler alert! Deanna does not actually leave the crew in this episode. I know. It's a shock. <sighs> Watching this episode was painful. Hopefully we'll get some good TNG after this. I could really use some good TNG in my life right now. I'm pretty sure the next episode is The Big Goodbye. I remember liking that one, so we'll see how it handles uh, you know, with, with analysis mode on. And I'll see you guys next time.